If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to open up to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 14 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for sending your Son, Lord, to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberties to the captives, and to give sight to the blind, Lord. And Father, I pray your anointing on Jackie this morning, and I would pray that our hearts would be open and our ears would hear, Lord, to receive that word, that seed, Lord, that it would grow in us and that we would provide good fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. About a hundred years ago, J.C. Ryle, uh, out of the Church of England, had this to say. He, he wrote this in his commentary on, uh, on Luke. It says, It is vain to conceal from ourselves that there are thousands of persons in Christian churches in little better state of mind than our Lord's hearers at Nazareth. There are thousands who listen regularly to the preaching of the gospel and admire it while they listen. They do not dispute the truth of what they hear. They even feel a kind of intellectual pleasure in hearing a good, powerful sermon. But their religion never goes beyond this point. Their sermon hearing does not prevent them from living a life of thoughtlessness, worldliness, and sin. It's interesting when we look at this particular section of the ministry of Christ as he is ministering to his hometown. The people in the synagogue are not strangers. They're kids he grew up playing with. He's, He's 30 years old now. He's grown up in Nazareth almost that entire time. They're not people who don't know him. 
And it, the scripture says it was his custom to go. He, he went to the synagogue all the time. But it doesn't just say it was his custom to go. It was his custom to go and read. So Jesus would go to that synagogue and he would stand up and he would read for as long as he was a part of that community. Isn't that kind of mind-boggling? And on this particular day, Jesus is going to make probably one of the clearest declarations that he is the Messiah that we have on the page of Scripture. Yet, through all of that, their hearts are still hard. And a lot of times we, we question that. It's, it's kind of interesting because when we go through Scripture, one of the things we see as we study is this idea that whenever Jesus spoke the word, people were blown away. Remember when he was 12 years old? Right? He's in the temple. And what are, they're, all, they're all amazed at multiple things. His understanding and his answers. And you think, well, how's a 12-year-old boy have answers to all these questions? Well, that 12-year-old boy is also God the Word. So you open up the book, Jesus would say, it's me you're reading about. I'm on every page. I'm in every part. Who better to give us exposition on the Word than God the Word? And I think we see it in Matthew 4, 23. It says, He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So His fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought Him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and He healed them. And great crowds followed Him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Yeah, there was a lot of fame occurring around Jesus. And it all started with what he taught. What he said about the word. Matthew 7, 28 says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, again, teaching, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who has authority. He was, he was, he was giving commentary on what God meant by the law. Now, just in case that doesn't settle in your mind, that is, if you're not God, a very arrogant statement to say, I'll tell you what God means by what he said in the law. Are you tracking with me? For example, Jesus said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, if you have hated your brother in your heart, you committed murder already. If you're not God... That's arrogant, isn't it? To try to explain. Boy, the people are blown away. They're amazed at the things that Jesus said. Mark 1, 21 says, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Look, this wasn't something that was new. This is something that's consistent throughout the ministry of Messiah. Opening up scriptures. Opening up scriptures to eyes that are unbelieving. And that unbelief, we're going to see today, that unbelief is the hinge upon which everything swings. Everything swings on that unbelief. And here's, there's something I want you to kind of grasp as we go through the gospel and we talk about Jesus. Because we'll talk about a lot of things and we'll look at Jesus and we'll, and a lot of times people will look. Jesus has 
you know, 5,000 men following him. He's fed them all. And, and they want to make him king and all these things going on. And then we see Jesus say something that, that sends them away. And a lot of times people will take those teachings and they want to apply that to us. And I, I just want to give you this little bit of insight to consider. Jesus came to open the door of evangelism, but evangelism wasn't his goal. Jesus came, in essence, to save 120, among whom are the twelve. And by the twelve, I'm using that term for the eleven. Obviously, Judas is the betrayer. So he came, that was his purpose. And he said to them, I just want you to consider, he said to them, you're going to do greater than I've done. Now we think he said that because we're going to be able to do the same miracles he did. And sometimes we've seen that those things occur. But I would say to you, he said that because he came and saved a small number. But the apostles, the first message that Peter preaches, how many people get saved? Yeah, and then after that, the next one, 5,000 more. What's happening now is that Jesus had made the way. He had provided the opportunity for which men's hearts could be open. When Jesus is there teaching in the synagogues, man's heart's still closed. Why? Because he didn't come to be king yet. He came to die. That was his purpose. People might say, well, you know, their, their eyes are blinded. God chose to blind their eyes. Well, sort of, but the way God chose to blind their eyes, according to the scripture, is Jesus taught in parables. Right? Why? So that they wouldn't see, so that they wouldn't hear, so that they wouldn't turn. For what purpose? So he could get to the cross. He's going to the cross to die, to make a way. This is Jesus' mission. We don't want to confuse his mission with our mission because he said, you're going to do greater things. I came for a few. You're going to go to many. That's why we come to scriptures where Jesus talks about narrow is the way and few there are who find it. And then later on in Revelation we read that there are an innumerable amount of people who are saved from every tribe, tongue, nation. Because Jesus makes a way. And we are those who follow that way. So Jesus coming to this, to his hometown, to the people who knew him best. And they're going to do what scripture said in John 1 they would do. What is that? He came into his own and his own, what? Would not receive him. But to as many as will receive, what does he say? He will give them the right to be called sons of God, right? He's going to, to those who respond, he will renew. So as we look at this, I just want you to see this idea. This is Jesus' custom. He's going and teaching. He's opening up the word for them. Let's read it. In verse 14, it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Nazareth is in the Galilee. And a report about him went, Throughout all the surrounding country. Now, what, what do you suppose that report is? You guys remember what we just came from? Previously, we had just had the baptism with John the Baptist, remember? 
Jesus went out into the wilderness, the same wilderness where the children of Israel crossed the Jordan. The same place where all those events happen is the place where Jesus begins his ministry to, to show the way, to provide the way. Jesus, it's all happening at the same time when Jesus is baptized. What happens? You have a voice from heaven, the Spirit descending like a, a dove, and Jesus all in one place. You have all uh, three members of the triune God. The Father speaks from the heavens, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He goes into the wilderness, comes out. John the Baptist is going to say, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. These are the things that are being talked about. Is he the Christ? Every time we read that, for us, it's Jesus' last name. But every time we read, is this the Christ? Is this the Christ? What's that mean? Is this the anointed one? Because he was baptized and we saw the Spirit descend. Something visibly happened, right? Because it says the Spirit descended in bodily form. So they saw something. So the the word is going around. People are talking about it. It says uh, in verse 15, And he taught in their synagogues. So not just Nazareth, in the area of the Galilee. This was a custom. Jesus would go around and teach, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Jesus' custom, sharing the word of God. Now, it's interesting what he shares. Let's look at what he shares. Verse 17, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, for you and I, we're looking at numbers in a book, right? They don't have those. So when you look at the scroll of Isaiah and it says he found the place, and we're talking Isaiah 61, we're deep in a scroll that is written. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. Some of you guys went with us to Israel and we saw, remember the, the uh, what's it, the, the of the book, the, the shrine of the book, English. <clears throat> so we went to the shrine of the book where you, you have the whole scroll of Isaiah laid out and you can see how it's all written. And, and you look at it and you realize Jesus has a scroll And he goes to the place where it was written. Now to me, that's pretty cool. I can find my place because there's numbers. Take all the numbers away and it's going to be a lot slower for me to find my way. Jesus finds a place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So he's reading from Isaiah 61. Now there's an interesting, a few interesting notes that we want to consider in this section of Scripture. If you have New King James, King James Version, yours is a little different. We're going to talk a little bit about why. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So we read that. And we realize Jesus has done two things. He left something out, and he stopped in the middle of a sentence. Okay? In the middle of a, in, in the middle of a sentence, he's going to stop. So this, in Isaiah 61, the pericope, the, the paragraph is three verses long. The sentence is three verses long. We'll look at that in just a minute. In our New King James Bibles, it says, not only did he come to... Uh, proclaim good news to the poor, but to bind up the brokenhearted. And here's what happened. You know, 
in the ancient manuscripts, it's not there. So what we decided was, well, obviously that's a mistake because in Isaiah 61, it is there. So we, we put it back in. And that's that we see, we see that in our new King James and King James Bibles. It, it, it was put back in. I'm going to say Jesus left it out for a reason. He also stopped in the middle of a sentence. We didn't put the rest of the sentence back in, did we? Nope. We stopped in the middle of a sentence. Why? Because that's what Jesus intended to read. Who's the word? Jesus is, right? So can we just let him do it his way? Are we okay with that? I'm going to explain it to you, and, 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 and I think it makes sense. But I, but I, don't, I, don't, want, I don't want to just skip over that, like that's not there. Hopefully some of the students of the Word are, are already seeing it. So let's compare it with Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's where Jesus stops. And the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. That's the whole sentence. Now, Jesus as God the Word can quote it any way He wants. And sometimes we can learn a lot by what he leaves off. Sometimes we can learn a lot by what he doesn't say. Let's see what he is explaining. He tells us in the beginning the method by which he was chosen. The Lord God has chosen me. He has anointed me. Look what he says. He has anointed me because the Lord has anointed me to preach. How did he anoint him? That anointing, that's, that's the word Christos. He has anointed me. He has made me Christ. How did that occur? The Holy Spirit came upon him. John gives us a little more insight. John says, upon whom the Holy Spirit descends and remains, that's the Christ. And so, he's, Jesus is saying, this has happened. Now remember, when we started this story, what did it say? Word was going out about what had happened before. Now we just said what happened before, right? He was baptized. Holy Spirit came down, voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. John the Baptist, the forerunner, pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's a lot of stuff to talk about, right? So Jesus explains it. He says, Hey, this is where it all began. In Luke 3, 3.22, we read, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So first part, the first thing he's describing... What just happened? What happened at the baptism? Next, he's going to talk about the ministry that he's going to perform. What is the ministry that he's going to perform? And so Jesus describes that. And I think this is where we can learn a little bit about what's left off. There's something he's proclaiming here. Let's see if we can see it. First, he says that he came... uh, to proclaim the good news to the poor. That word proclaim, the, the, the English puts proclaim in there twice, but it's two different words. Uh, euangelion, euangelizo is, the, is this word, which is the word from which we get the word evangelize. 
I'm going to evangelize the poor. What's that mean? I'm going to go to the poor and I've got good news for them. And the good news is you can be set free. And there's set free, set free, set free. Put at liberty, put at liberty, put at liberty that Jesus is going to be quoting here from. This is his focus. The liberty to the captives. There's going to be deliverance. All the things that Jesus chooses to bring out of Isaiah 61 deal with liberty and they deal with the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, what happened? All your debts were canceled. Wouldn't that be nice? Especially after Christmas? Anybody want all their debts canceled? We're going to spend the rest of the year paying for what we bought, yeah? Some of us, anyway. So, the year of Jubilee, all your debts are canceled. Now, when we're talking about the Messiah, the Christ, what, where, who do we owe, who's the one we owe the biggest debt to? God. I am a guilty man before God. One of the most important things we can learn is to stop justifying ourselves and painting some pretty picture when we look in the mirror and actually look at the reality. We, we sing songs like Amazing Grace, right? We sing songs about Amazing Grace, but do we really think we're a wretch? Or that we were? That's important. That's important. We, have, we owed a debt to God. Jesus is proclaiming one of the ministries of Messiah is the canceling of those debts because that debt's going to be paid by Jesus. He's going to pay it. There's deliverance. There's freedom. Messiah's come to make us free. He's come to make us free. He's going to not only give liberty to the captives, but the recovery of sight to the blind. Now, how many are blind? Most of them. And Jesus is going to physically touch eyes and make them see. But I'm going to say to you, in my opinion, they don't see till Pentecost. The vast majority of people don't see till Pentecost. Now, I differ a lot with some of my Calvinist brothers in several concepts. One of them is this. I struggle with the idea of, of Jesus using parables for blind men. Why do I need to put a blindfold on a blind guy? He can't see anyway. No? So, you know, those are, that's, that's one of my issues. Jesus said, I've come to set the blind free. When's that going to happen? Resurrection. When did, when did his brothers believe? When did Jesus' family get turned on? When did Jude and James really fire up? When did the brothers of Christ look at? When did his hometown begin to realize, oh my gosh, all these things he said were true. This is really who he is. When did the blinders come off? Wow, he rose from the dead. He ascends into heaven. The Spirit comes down on the disciples and the world is turned upside right. He come to set us free. To set the captives free. The recovery of sight to the blind. To give liberty to those who are oppressed. Again, more language of freedom, more language of jubilee, liberty for those who are oppressed. It just reminds me of what, what we see of Christ in Revelation. What did Jesus say? Behold, I make all things new. I love that. I love that that is completed in the finished work of Christ. 
And when we look through the gospel, we want to remind ourselves as we make our journey through the gospel that the finished work of Christ isn't done yet. So we still deal with blindness. You guys with me? We, we still deal with, with a lot of those things that Jesus is going to kind of take a broad stroke with at the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you see dramatic differences in the way the disciples, not, not in the message, but in the effect. When the disciples preach, what happens? 3,000, 5,000, thousands upon thousands. From every tr- tongue, what, what, Jesus wasn't a good preacher? No. He had a purpose to accomplish. He accomplished his purpose. He fulfills his work. What's he doing? He's setting us free. He's opening eyes. He's proclaiming the year of Jubilee. Liberty for those who are oppressed. He's making all things new. And then he finishes it by saying this. And this is where he stops. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Man, that is so important for us to hold on to. Listen, this is why it's important for us to hold on to. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says this. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. When he stops there, what's he proclaiming? Man, this is the day. This is the work. This is the good news. The Bible is a book teaching us about two roads men walk. A road of destruction and a road of life. Jesus in his work opens up the way on the road of life. And then he says to you and I, come, what? Follow me. Come follow me. Come respond. Come, come, take up your cross and what? Follow me. Follow me. We want to be, we want that to be our attitude. So he's proclaiming in, in Isaiah 61 and what he quotes. And I said, now, as I look at it, I see this message, this message of being, of freedom coming, of freedom coming. And this is Jesus' focus. I want to tell you about freedom. I've come to set you free. You guys don't even know you're in chains. But I've come to set you free. I've come to break the bondage of sin. I've come to bring the, the, the opportunity for repentance, for forgiveness, for salvation. All of this I've, I've come to do. But what I haven't come to set you free from is a broken heart. You're still going to have that. Even Isaiah says the same thing, doesn't he? All he says is he'll do what to the broken heart? He says, I will bind it up. He didn't say, I'll stop it from happening. Have anybody experienced in our walk with Christ brokenheartedness? Have we ever been brokenhearted about those who reject the truth? Have we ever been brokenhearted about our own circumstances or the events that have happened to us in life? Have we been brokenhearted by those things? Well, listen, Jesus, when he's talking to Nazareth, he's saying to them, Guys, I've come to set you free, and I think this is the important part, but I'm not setting you free from a broken heart. The scripture declares the Lord is near to those who are what? Brokenhearted. 
Because that's how we reflect our God. You know our God is brokenhearted over the rebellion of His creation. We reflect it. We reflect Him, I think, when we recognize these things. So this, I think, is what Jesus is proclaiming. This is what I, want, I think He wants them to understand. He wants them to know, here's the message. I've come to give a gospel, and the gospel is a gospel of deliverance, and now is the time of salvation. This is the time. Here it comes. This is the way. And, I, and, and to me, it's all shades or shadows of the year of Jubilee. To me, that's what salvation is all about. Salvation is being set free from my debt. For the wages of sin is death. And I've worked a long time on those. I owe, but Jesus came and he took and he paid my debt. He paid my debt. And I, I just want us to recognize, I want us to see it. And at that moment it says in verse 20, he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And everybody there in the synagogue, all eyes are on him. Because he just shared it, he just said it. And he rolls up the scroll and he sits down. We're not done yet. Everybody's looking at him. Everybody's waiting because they're, they're always on the edge of their seat when the Word of God teaches the Word of God. It's so exciting to me to see what's going on. Everybody, all eyes in the synagogue are fixed on him. Listen, what was the motive you think that Jesus had? As he goes through this section, he shares what he shared, he leaves off what he leaves off, because we know now is the day of salvation, later is the day of judgment, right? That's the rest of the verse. It's dealing with the judgment of God. The day of the judgment of God. There's, there is judgment that's going to take place on the cross, but that, I think there's a greater judgment we're looking for. What was the motive? What was the, the heart behind Jesus as he proclaims this? I think Isaiah 61.3 tells us, why? To grant those who mourn in Zion. To give them uh, beauty for ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise uh, instead of a faint spirit, that they would be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. For what purpose? That He might be glorified. That the light would shine on God. He would be illuminated. We, we religious. I don't know the right word. We religious words. Religious. Okay. I'll go with that. Religious. What do I mean? We talk about the glory of God. The glory of God. The glory of God. Do you ever picture what that is? What is that? What is the glory of God? The Bible describes it in two words. Two different Hebrew words for glory. Kabod, which is weight. And Shekinah, which is light. The weight and the light. The weightiness of God. The illumination of God. This is what it's talking about when it talks about glorifying God. Well, when we come to the end of Jesus' ministry, in John chapter 17, when he's praying his high priestly prayer, guys, in verse 4, listen to what Jesus said. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished what the work you gave me to do. He came. This is the purpose. This is the illumination that Jesus Christ is providing. And so he reads the word and all eyes are on him. 
He's come to glorify the Lord, to shine a light on Him. You and I, we cannot know the unknowable God except through the very knowable Jesus. That's how we know Him. The Bible clearly describes that God is spirit, that He is invisible. The only one who has seen God at any time. No man has seen God. How do we see God? We look at Jesus. He is God with whom we can relate. Anybody's mind ever melt when you think about the Trinity? It should. If it doesn't, you're not thinking about it, right? But that's okay. The transcendent nature of God is okay. God should be bigger than our understanding, shouldn't He? If I could explain Him and figure out everything that God did, it wouldn't be much of a God. I would be God then, wouldn't I? If I could explain all the whys. Why did this happen in my life, Jackie? Oh, let me tell you. Oh, I don't know. I'm not God. He is. But it's Jesus Christ who reveals God to us, who shines a light on it, who proclaims Him, so that we can understand and see and have some way of relating to the unknowable God. Why do I call Him the unknowable God? Because if He didn't reveal Himself to you, you wouldn't know Him. You cannot know Him if He doesn't reveal Himself to you. Adam and Eve, God had to show Himself to them, no? Otherwise, they'd have just woke up and looked around and said, Wow. Look at that. We must have just accidentally got here. So what happens? God shows himself. God walked with Adam in the cool of the evening. God is a God who wants to relate to his creation. Jesus Christ is glorifying him by shining a light. Showing the weightiness of God. Helping us see him. So, it says in uh, in verse 21, he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay, what he said is, I'm him. Jesus declared in a synagogue in Nazareth, standing before all of his friends and family and people who he grew up with, he said, I'm the Christ. That's what the Lord has anointed me. The Lord has made me Christ. So he's declaring, today this is fulfilled. And they're all looking at him. And they're all blown away by what he says. And they're all blown away by what he teaches. But there's a problem. There's a problem. They're confused. What's the problem? Same problem today. The problem is unbelief. That you can hear the word of God and still not believe what it says. Is that possible? Yeah. For sure. Check it out. They all, in verse 22, they all spoke well of him. So, Jesus had a good reputation, right? They all spoke well of him. And marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And man, when he, said, when he talks the word of God, it's amazing. The way he, nobody does it. There was something about the word of God giving the word of God, right? So they're blown away by it all. They marvel at it. And then they say, isn't this Joseph's son? How can he be the Christ? Man, they marvel, they're blown away of what the Word of God says, and all that stuff doesn't lead them to faith. doesn't lead them to belief. They're hung up on this. Well, I watched this little one grow up here. Why you used to play with my kid? 
They'd run around and do all of that kid stuff that kids do. He, 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 how can this be the Christ? How can this be the one? So they like the sound of it. They're blown away by it, but they won't believe it. They won't believe what he's saying. Let's look at another uh, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, when it talks about it. Matthew 13, verse 54. It says, And Jesus coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. And they were astonished. And they said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? How did this happen? One of our kids. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Oh, by the way, that's a problem for those who think Jesus didn't have brothers. And are not all his sisters with us? And that's a problem for those who think he didn't have sisters. Where did this man get all these things? They're blown away by what he taught, but they didn't believe what he said. Blown away by what he taught, but they didn't believe what he said. They were impressed, but unbelieving. And then they react. Look what it says in in Matthew again, verse 57. So they took offense at him. They took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there. Why? Because of what? Unbelief, right? They didn't believe. Mark 6, 1 through 6 gives us the same story. He went from there, came to his hometown, his disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, they're blown away, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom? given to him how are such mighty works done by his hands isn't this the carpenter isn't this the son of mary the brother of james and joseph judas and simon are not his sisters here with us and they took offense at him they took offense you know whenever we study the word of god and one of the in my opinion one of the very important things that that the 21st century church needs to learn to do. 21st century church doesn't need to learn to compromise. Doesn't need to, to learn to make peace with every side of every view. But it does need to learn to listen. And hear. Because they listened, but they didn't hear. Or they heard the words. But they already had an opinion. And they jumped to their opinion before... They considered anything. They jump right into their opinion, and their opinion is, this is just a carpenter. It's a local carpenter. He was over my house fixing my door the other day. How could he be the Christ? Don't take yourself out of the reality of life. I think sometimes we look at Jesus and we think, well, he never lived for 30 years. He just disappeared and then reappeared. With a halo over his head, and everybody should have known he was the Christ, right? But this is the struggle for them. This was their blindness. This was their unbelief. This was their struggle. And so Jesus is going to respond to them. In in verse 23, Jesus anticipates where they're going. Look what he says. So he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. I'll tell you where they quoted it. Luke 23, 35. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him and said, He saved others, but himself he can't save. 
if he is the Christ, let him save himself. Physician, heal yourself. You have, you're able to do all these things for others, but you can't do nothing for you? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. Let me tell you their problem. Their theology was getting in the way of the truth. Their theology, their concept of how God worked and what God does was in the way of the truth. Is that true for us? How many times is it our theology that is button heads with what the Word of God says? We read the Word of God and we say, man, that doesn't really fit in my theology, so I'm going to leave that out, or I'm going to put that over here, or I'm going to treat it differently or separately instead of being consistent throughout the Word of God. What were these guys doing? These guys had a theology. They had an idea, a concept. This is how God works. God can't work any other way. Do you believe that? When I first came to Calvary Chapel Buell, they told me, well, they didn't tell me. Steve told me, Jackie can't wear jeans there. They, they're not going to stand for you wearing jeans. Yeah, that's, sorry, bro, that's not going to work. Or they can take the other guy. <laughs> uh, look, you get what you get with me. I got this thing, I got this weird thing where I, I'm sorry, I know some of you have to apologize to people you bring because you say, oh, wait till you see the preacher's hair. Yeah, I hear you, brother. And then, I, but, but before that, it was, okay, well, before you come to church, he wears flip-flops when he teaches. Or, before, or after that, it was, you know, when you come, he's got this big, crazy beard now. I don't know, he's going through a phase. <laughs> I just got this thing in me that says, you know, we have problems with perception all the time. And we let that rob us of the reality of the truth. Of what God is able to do. What God wants to do. How God wants to move. And how God wants to work. And so these guys, guys, they're blinded by their tradition. Jesus is going to say to them, you know what? They have all these traditions they, that they teach as the doctrines of God. They say this is how it has to be. This is how it has to look. And in the last two years, probably, in the last two years, a lot of my... Theology has been challenged, and I appreciate that. I appreciate it because it's important for me to say, is my theology driving the bus, or is the Word of God driving the bus? Because at the end, it's the Word of God that needs to drive the bus. My theology needs to fit with it. Can we agree on that? My theology needs to fit with what the Word of God says. And so, I struggle with these ideas where people say, well, if you have a different opinion than me, you got to go to a different church. Well, I don't say that. I say, if you got a different opinion than me, we have this thing called round table. Let's sit down and talk it out. Well, I'm not comfortable. There's arguing there. How are you ever going to share your faith, man? There's arguing every time I try to tell somebody about Jesus. No? The Bible says, come let us reason together. You know what that word is? Yeah, it's argue. Go figure. The Bible says we're not to be quarrelers. A quarreler is someone who won't... 
He just wants to... What did James say? Be quick to... Slow to... Yeah, so we want to be listeners, right? We want to be listeners. Sit back and really consider. And then... Reason. From where? Scripture. That's right, from Scripture. And I think this is the problem for these guys. I think this is what blinds them to what's going on. So later on they're going to say to them, Jesus, do miracles. And Jesus is going to say, no. You don't believe. Why, is he limited by belief? No, God's not limited by belief. How do I know that? Because in Genesis 1.1 it says, In the beginning God said, let there be light. Nobody had to believe, and light was. God's power is not limited by our faith, but God's willingness to work in our midst is... You don't believe. I'm going to do it over there. Why? Because it's important that you do what? Believe. To God, it's very important that you believe what He says. That's in His Word. What He says. God says, I exalt my Word above all my name. You ever think about how they revered the name of God? They would get a new pin every time they had to write it. You ever seen how many times the name of God is in one verse? They get a new pen, a new thing of ink. They had to take a, a shower and come back and every time. That's how they revered God's name. And God says, I revere my word above that. So, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not believe the things that I say? Yeah, that doesn't go together. Neither does no Lord. The proper response is what? Yes, Lord. Yes, I'll do it. It's what your word says. I'm going to follow and do what your word says. Look, he knows their attitudes. It says, he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. There's no acceptance or honor. Why? Every prophet dealt with this. Why? Why did they deal with this? Because they have a message. What's the message? Repent. Let me, let me simplify it. You're on the wrong road. The road you're on leads to destruction. Get off this road and come follow me. That was the message of every prophet. To the nation of Israel. When when Ezekiel's prophesying in Babylon, what's he telling them? Uh, Hey guys, you're on the wrong road. This road leads to destruction. They're going to destroy the entire city. Stop. Get on this road. Isn't that what Ezekiel said? How about Jeremiah? How about Isaiah? Let's find a prophet. You can go to Jonah. Jonah, the people listened. But here's the here's the here's the 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 rub. Jonah went to Nineveh. That wasn't his hometown, right? Those were a bunch of crazy psycho pagans who Jonah said God shouldn't save. And when they repented, what did God do? Save them all. Yeah, God likes to do that. He likes to get that rub in us. He likes to say, "Oh, you think I can't save this guy? Watch." Watch. Once upon, when I grew up in church, if you did not have your shirt tucked in and a belt on, you get walked back out the back door. Now, I got a belt on, but I don't tuck my shirt in. Some of you think I don't tuck my shirt in because I'm fat. That's part of it. <laughs> the other part of it is, uh, yeah, that has nothing to do with anything. Wear belt, don't wear belt. Wear shoes, don't wear shoes. I don't care. You want to come barefoot in the winter and knock yourself out. None of that gets you closer to God or further away. We let the Word of God dictate. 
And so he says, man, a, a prophet's not acceptable. Why? Because he's telling people, you need to change. Jesus is telling his hometown, your sin is unbelief. And you need to step out of unbelief if you want to experience God. Is that not true? Can you experience him? Well, you can, but the way you're going to experience him is not going to be very uh, fun, pleasant. Right? I can experience God in judgment, or I can experience God in salvation. Which way do you want to do it? Jesus is calling them to belief. Now look, he's going to answer this. He's going to answer their attitudes, this call to repentance, in two stories. Look at the two stories real quick. He says, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came, all, came over all the land. But Elijah wasn't sent to any of them, only Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. King 17, if you want to read up on the story later on today. Oh, she's a Gentile. There are lots of widows in Israel, but Elijah didn't go to them. Why? Because the struggle in Israel was what? Unbelief. They would not believe. Elijah said, how long are you going to bounce between two opinions? If God is God, worship Him. If Baal, worship Him. The people are struggling with unbelief. So where does God go? To the Gentiles. Why? They believe. Jesus said every time a Gentile with faith came in the ministry of Christ, what does he say? I have not seen such faith in all of Israel. What's the next story? The next story. And and there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Guess what he has in common with Zarephath? He's a Gentile. He's a pagan through and through. And a a little servant girl says, Hey, if you have leprosy, why don't you go see the prophet? Maybe he can help you. Now, the little servant girl happened to have ties to Israel. How come the lepers in Israel weren't doing that? How come the lepers in Israel weren't going, Hey, we need to go see Elisha. Maybe there's something he can do for us. Well, what happens when Jesus comes? Did the lepers have a hard time finding him? Man. But only to Naaman the Syrian did they come. Unbelief created a situation where possibilities were not realized and benefits did not flow. The unbelief of Israel was always holding them back from the blessing that God had for them. Now the key in this story is not for you and I to look at each other and go, good things, we're Gentiles. (laughs) That's not the point. The point is, unbelief will stop you. Unbelief, and what what is God's Word saying? What is God's Word teaching? Do I believe? Or do I just come in... And here and say, wow, this is cool. There's, there's some good, good things to hear here, but you know what? It's not changing me. It's not, it's not affecting me. But the word says when they heard this, they were filled with thumos. Thumos. The word of God says 
the thumos of man will never accomplish the righteousness of God. They got hot. That's what thumos is literally. Hot. Fire. They got mad. They bared their teeth. They looked all crazy at the one who grew up in their same town. The one who played with their kids. The one who repaired their door last week. So angry, so mad, because their tradition, their view, their concept was being scrambled. Their construct was falling apart. That they rush at Jesus and they chase Him out. And they take Him to the end of town, to where the town is, right on the edge of a cliff. Reminds me of another guy. Stephen. In Acts 7, you guys can read about it. In Acts 7.51, Stephen says this to the people. You stiff-necked people. That means stubborn. You bunch of stubborn guys. Uncircumcised in ear and heart. That means you're not consecrated to God. You don't believe. You won't hear. You won't believe. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, just a quick side note. They're not reprobate. Because they are consciously resisting. They are consciously resisting the Holy Spirit. They're saying, hey, the Holy Spirit is doing what? What does the Holy Spirit do? It woos. It calls. It draws. It convicts. All of those things are going on. What are these people doing? When the wooing and the calling is happening. Resisting. Oh, ah, my feet are up. I don't want this. No, no, no. They're against it. What's he say? Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Which one of the prophets didn't they kill? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Just a little while ago, you chopped off the head of John the Baptist. Who said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And you murdered the the Messiah. Well done. Now what do those guys do? They look at him, Stephen, the same way they looked at Jesus. And they kill him. They're going to kill Jesus. It says they rose up, drove him out of town. Brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built. So that they would throw him off the cliff. The guy who grew up with their kids. Who fixed their door last week. Who'd been with them for 30 years. They're going to kill him. Because they don't like what he said. You ever take a look at church history? You should take a little meander through it. And see for how many thousands of years one side or the other was burning one side or the other. Over. And over. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by whether or not you can burn all the bad guys. Wait, that's not there. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by how you do what? Love each other. How you love the family of God. Well, that family of God can't be the family of God because they have different opinions than me, so let's put them on, a, let's burn them. And then I don't have to deal with their opinions. And before we get too proud, just so you know, everybody did it. Catholics did it. Protestants did it. Reformers did it. Everybody did it. 
If they got a chance to burn somebody, they all burned them. That's not how you learn Christ. That's the traditions of men. That's what was blinding these guys when Jesus was standing right in front of them. They took him to throw him off a cliff. What happened? I love this part. Jesus walks right through the middle of them. People say, how do you do that? <laughs> Let me just tell you. Nothing happens to you if it's not God. God's time, nothing happens. The other day I was listening to radio. I'm going to Nigeria in a couple of months. We're going to do a pastor's conference in Abuja. I'm excited about teaching a lot of young pastors how to properly study the Word of God and hold fast to the Bible and not to our own opinions and concepts. So I'm excited about being able to do that. And then afterwards, for three days, we're going into Muslim territory to show the Jesus film. Anybody listen to the news? Christmas, the Nigerian Christians out in the Muslim areas were singing Christmas carols. And... Uh, Muslims shot them, killed them on Christmas. Now, I'm not too worried about that, although it is a little freaky to think, oh, that's where I'm going. Cool. I'll tell you this, if, uh, if that's God's plan, what way do you want to show up to heaven? Hey, I'm a martyr. You, you get special everything if that works out. <laughs> no? I mean... If, we're, if I'm in heaven and I'm rubbing shoulders with somebody there, how'd you get here? Oh, I lived till I was really old and then I died. Oh, yeah, I, 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 I was martyred for the faith. Or, I don't know, I, I'd probably get a broom because I'd be full of pride and that doesn't work in heaven. <laughs> but here's what I know about that reality. Nothing happens to me unless God says okay. Nothing. And if God says okay, then I'm okay with it. I'm not worried about it. What I'm worried about is living a life that's not honoring my God and King. I don't want that. I don't want to be these guys in Nazareth looking at Jesus and not liking Him because what He's saying is flying in the face of my opinion. I want to, I want to be quick to bow my heart and my head and say... You're the king. For me, you know, we all have to make a choice. We look at Jesus, we look at him one of two ways. He's either Joseph's son or he's the son of God. Right? As for my, me and my house, he is Jesus Christ, God's son, Savior. You got to make up your own mind. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.